You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. On today's program, I spoke with Kurt Bardella. He's a national columnist and television commentator who left the GOP to become a Democrat and is leading the fight against Donald Trump's overt program of racial discrimination against Asian Americans during the coronavirus crisis. Kurt had the brilliant idea of discontinuing unfiltered coverage of Trump's daily coronavirus misinformation press conferences and made it go viral on Twitter before Rachel Maddow closed her emotional program last week by calling on the media to stop spreading his lies. That's because he's been on the inside, and he knows the moral bankruptcy of today's Republican Party, which is caught in the grip of Trump and Trumpism. We spoke about Trump's unhinged attacks on the media, his absurdist criticism of President Obama's successful response to the Ebola virus, and so much more. Take a listen to my interview with Kurt Bardella. I'm here with Kurt Bardella, whose journey from being a Republican insider to becoming a Democrat has been publicly documented in his columns for USA Today, where he's on the board of contributors, and on MSNBC, where he also is a contributor. But that's all after spending years in D.C. as a spokesman for Republican congresspeople and eventually as senior advisor to the House Government Oversight Committee when it was under Republican control. He's a Democrat today, and his hot takes are the ultimate exercise in learning how to flip the script on the GOP. Kurt, thank you for joining me on the program. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, before we discuss your reaction to to Trump administration's handling of the coronavirus crisis, uh, can you please tell our listeners what made you leave the Republican Party? You know, there were a lot of things happening at one time that kind of forced me to confront the realities about how I felt about issues, things like climate change and gun reform, racism, income inequality. And then you had, at the same time, this rise of Trumpism, the, the, the effort uh, by Trump and his allies, people like Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller, to hijack the Republican Party. And it just became clear to me that this wasn't something that I wanted to be affiliated with, that they were espousing things that were the complete opposite of what I believed in. And you know, we have in this country, for better or worse, a two-party system. And you know, the easy thing would have been to just say, I'm a, I'm a never-Trumper or become even an independent. But I felt very strongly about the things that were happening and the direction that it was going to take our country. And uh, after a lot of soul-searching and a lot of talking with just people that I was close with, I reached a point where I felt that it was meaningful to come forward and say, I'm not just uh, against Donald Trump. I'm not just leaving the Republican Party, but I'm becoming a Democrat. But what is your opinion of Trump's public relations effort to rebrand the coronavirus at his frequent press conferences? What's the point of him using a racist term? Is it to distract or what's the what's the point of it? Donald Trump is so desperate, I think, to avoid being held responsible by the American people for the complete debacle that has been his response to the coronavirus. That And, and it is a playbook we have seen time and again throughout his presidency that when, when the waters get choppy, he starts throwing out racial terms, hoping that it will take oxygen away and distract everybody's attention away from the task at hand. The reality on the ground is people aren't being aren't getting the tests that they need. Hospitals and medical professionals don't have the equipment that they need, and there's really no end in sight for this crisis. On top of which, we now know that this president and his administration had information about this crisis going back to January and did nothing with it. And so Trump is so desperate, I think, to 
avoid responsibility, that he is just throwing out anything that he can out of his traditional playbook that we've seen from him to try to take our attention away from that. And, and, and our goal has to be, while it is important, and I say this as someone who you know, shares the physical features of Asian Americans, that it is important to obviously acknowledge when something is racist and, and, and to call them out for it. But we have to do that and then immediately pivot to the task at hand, which is keeping the focus where it belongs, which is the government response to corona. Can you explain to some folks why it's racist? Uh, Because somebody yesterday, obviously, a fake reporter asked the question of like, well, Chinese food, you know, that's from China. So um, and my thought is, well, it's coming from a racist mouth. So that's why it's racist. But uh, and the intent is there. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to people why it's racist, why why he's painting it that way? Well, you know, we've seen with Donald Trump that in every situation that he has had to navigate throughout his presidency, it ultimately comes down to having an adversary to direct the American people's attention to, to place blame away from himself. And in this case, he's trying to put that blame on Asian Americans. And part of what you have to look at is, is historical context for that person. Donald Trump has called Hispanic people rapists and drug dealers. He's referred to countries from Africa as shithole countries. We've seen now with this recent coronavirus' efforts to brand it as, as, as something coming from a foreign place that's here attacking America. And so when he says it, and you kind of allude to this, when a racist person says it, it is racist, and, and, and intent matters. Uh, he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt at this point in his presidency. This is someone who has thrived on trying to so, you know, divide and hate and use those as instruments, as weapons, to advance his, his radical agenda. And I think that as someone, again, who, who, who is Asian American, uh, when, when we are seeing escalating acts of violence hate directed at Asian Americans. We had uh, someone at the White House walked up to a White House correspondent and referred to the coronavirus as, as the Kung flu. So those are clearly racist tropes. And, and that reporter kind of made the, the, the observation that this is what they're saying to my face. Imagine what they're saying behind closed doors. Uh, you know, it, it, it is racist under any standard. And, and people who don't understand that or who reject that are just running interference for the president at this point. Find out more about Meet the Candidates 2020, my new book series of voter guides, authored by Dworkin Report producer Grant Stern. It's the only place you can read my opinion and a factual portrait of each major Democratic candidate in one place. Buy the book now at the link inside this episode's notes at grantstern.com or your local Barnes & Noble. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. I want to point out uh, today's tirade against NBC's mild-mannered reporter Peter Alexander. Are you surprised by his attacks today on the media? I was surprised at the uh, the question that that launched that tirade from him because Peter asked a very, I felt, uh, obvious and and non-threatening question, which is, "What is your message, Mr. President, uh, to people at home who are who are scared right now about what's going on?" Uh, that that's a layup for any other person. Uh, that is an opportunity for the president to demonstrate leadership, to, to play the role of comforter in chief, to, uh, you know, use that platform that he has as a way to encourage uh, and inspire confidence in his response. And instead he used it as, as this bizarre tirade against Peter and NBC news broadly. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's just, I think that Trump has been so wired now for the last three, four years that every time something comes up, he either goes to, uh, it's, it, it's a hoax. It's racist. The media is, is attacking me. There's the same three themes we've seen from him throughout his entire presidency. 
And because he doesn't have the answers, and, and, and I think he doesn't even have, frankly, the intellectual capacity to grasp the total magnitude of this of this catastrophe right now, that he just kind of goes into default mode and falls back into just these recycled lines that he's been using uh, at, at rallies that we've seen time and again. Uh, you know, that, that's all that we get from him right now. There's nothing new that we haven't seen over and over and over again for the last few years. And, uh, and I just think it, it illustrates how desperate he is. And the investigative reports that I've done on MSNBC, I can tell you, uh, extremely vetted. I never went on air with anything without their approval and seeing, uh, you know, that it's true, it's factual, 100%, knowing what I can talk about with it and whatnot. So it's not like people can just make stuff up, not from thin air. And if they do, there's repercussions for it. So it's kind of, kind of nonsense. But you, you were a great column about the, the House Republican response to Ebola after President Obama appointed Joe Biden's former chief of staff, Ron Klain, to lead the response. Can you tell our listeners what they did? And if you were running the House Oversight Panel today, what you would do? Well, I think that really what Republicans did was they immediately politicized and, uh, and used their oversight powers and authority to try to make the Obama administration look as badly as possible. And public health and welfare really wasn't the, the priority for Republicans during this period of time. And when the president anointed Ron Klain to be the Ebola czar, uh, they, they, they held a hearing on Ron's first day and on the job to try to pillar the administration's uh, on their response. And, and I just think to myself, the interesting thing was their criticism, what one of them was, well, why not appoint a medical professional or someone with infectious disease experience? And, Sure enough, when President Trump here makes Mike Pence the equivalent of the Ebola czar during Corona, everyone's cheering for him, uh, despite the fact that he has no track record. In fact, he has an awful record when you look at how the HIV epidemic exploded in Indiana during his time as governor. But it's just an, another illustration of the double standard that Republicans now uh, seem to be operating under, that everything that they did to Barack Obama, uh, they are doing the exact opposite when it comes to Donald Trump, despite the fact that the circumstances are certainly more serious. Uh, and the consequences are more severe. And I think that, you know, Democrats in Congress should use the authority that they have to try to get as much information as possible in the public domain about what the administration's Ebola uh, response to Corona has been. Uh, why are things not happening that should be happening? Uh, what is the conversation like, uh, within the CDC and NIH and, and the administration? Because it seems very evident that decisions are being made based more on politics and public perception than on public health and welfare. Speaking of Ebola, Donald Trump had a lot of opinions about that deadly virus on Twitter. How would you compare those to his terrible response to the coronavirus? I mean, this is a guy who literally put out more than 100 tweets attacking Barack Obama's response to the Ebola crisis, who literally called President Obama dumb and incompetent and stupid. And now that the shoe's on the other foot and, and, and he's, he's in charge, he is holding himself to a completely different standard. Whereas he believes, and he has said this at, at these press conferences that he has, that he's doing a great job. He gives himself a 10 on, on the scale of 1 to 10 of how he's responding to it. And it's a, a just you know, the, the adage that there's a tweet for everything. For everything that Trump says and does, there is a tweet from Donald Trump completely contradicting it. And it, it's part of the reason why I think that so many people are concerned right now that he just isn't up to the task. That he is going to uh, exacerbate what we're going through, prolong it and make it harder to recover from because he has no earthly idea what he's doing. How do you think this ends for Trump? I think that this costs him the election. I think that while there were certainly encouraging signs for Democrats heading into 2020, uh, 
when you look at how they how the Democrats performed in the midterm elections in 2018, you look at some of the gubernatorial races in Kentucky, Louisiana. They were things have been trending very positively for Democrats, but now up against the likely presumable frontrunner Democrat Joe Biden, uh, the just case for competency is, is, is the contrast between Biden and Trump stylistically, rhetorically, is so I think great and. The, all the successes that Trump would talk about, the stock market, the economy, well, all that's been wiped out now because of, of, of his response to the coronavirus. And I think that ultimately the American people are going to vote their own welfare uh, by the time November rolls around. And when they have you know, less jobs, less money, less opportunities, when there's uncertainty about how they're going to get their kids to school and how they're going to afford daycare, all of these things that they're having to grapple with, I think that they're going to make the decision that it's very obvious that is as entertaining as Donald Trump may have been to some of these people who voted for him in 2016, they're ready to change the channel and get back to normal. This episode of The Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. And based on reports that I just got right now, um, we, we likely are going to cross the threshold of 20,000 infected in the, in the country tonight, um, or probably at the time of this release, uh, you know, as numbers are going to skyrocket with some testing and results finally getting going. Um, any positive thoughts to share with folks as we head into the weekend? You know, the one thing I'll say is we are seeing some remarkable uh, connectivity through the use of social media platforms uh, that, that there are people who are actively trying to find bright spots in our days to try to help one another. Uh, I think just the other day, country music superstar Brad Paisley did an Instagram live session where he had, where he played some songs, had folks like Tim McGraw and Carrie Underwood call in. Senator Joe Manchin was watching and tweeted about it. And, and you just kind of see that, you know, for, for, for our creators and our, entertainers, uh, you know, they are using these platforms to try to, to, to keep that connectivity together, even though they can't necessarily put on a show in person or at an amphitheater or an arena. I mean, even LeBron James did his first ever Instagram live the other night, and, and it, there were more than 100,000 people watching at any given point in time. Uh, so while for so many of us, this is challenging, uh, there's kind of an element of stir crazy and uncertainty and fear. On the flip side of it, there are people trying to to do things actively to help each other out. Uh, even you look at some of the efforts to make sure that people who work uh, at jobs that right now aren't, aren't, aren't available, there are people who are trying to raise money for those workers so that they don't have to go without a paycheck. And, and this has been the hallmark of our country for so long. During the most you know, uh, difficult and challenging and trying times, our people have a remarkable capacity to come together, to unite, to be resilient, and try to find the best in one another to help us through that. And I think, uh, if anything, that's one of the things that we'll be able to take away from this. And uh, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, at Kurt Bardella, K-U-R-T-B-A-R-D-E-L-L-A. And how can they sign up for your country music newsletter? So that's the other part of my life. I, I, I Because it's my passion and my hobby, I started a country music media platform called The Morning Hangover, the daily morning email update about all things country music. And you can sign up free at www.morninghangover.com. It is shockingly amazing how your connection with music, uh, especially uh, obviously with country music, but just overall, 
So thank you for doing that as a musician. Um, I appreciate what you do and definitely check that out. We'll have that in the notes as, as well as uh, some of the pieces that Kurt's written in some of his uh, video from MSNBC. Uh, Kurt Bardella, thank you again for joining us today. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and stay safe. Best to you and your family. Right back at you, brother. I'd like to thank Kurt Bardella for joining us today. I'd like to thank our producer, Grant Stern. You can follow him at Grant Stern. You can pick up a copy of our bios on Biden and also Sanders at meetthecandidates2020.com. You can check out our website at dworkinreport.com. Thanks again for listening. Keep resisting. Onward! Onward!